Tabernacle family, if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to find your place in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, and this morning I want to speak on the subject, truth from the triumphal entry. Truth from the triumphal entry. Uh, We've often heard about this event, many of us known as the triumphal entry. If you're like me, you I grew up in church, attending church, and I can remember from a young age hearing the stories about the triumphal entry. And our text before us this morning in Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, contains the story of this event. Interestingly, the triumphal entry is spoken of in all four gospel accounts. Matthew 21 Mark 1, Luke 19, and John 12. There's not many things mentioned in every gospel account, but this event is. And it's fourfold emphasis in all four gospels uh, tells us that this event deserves special attention. It has awesome heaven-sent truth for us and for our lives. So in our passage, Mark tells the story of this event called the triumphal entry as the other gospel writers did because he wanted his readers to be aware of the important spiritual truth and spiritual significance related to the event. And so Mark's Mark's narrative here reminds us that God the Father through the Holy Spirit has recorded Uh, this event in scripture for our good. We we need to know about this event and there's some truth in this event nested within this event that we need to be aware of. Now I remember, I've got a pretty vivid memory, a pretty good memory. I remember as a child uh, being in the, the upstairs building, upstairs floor, the second floor of the education building in the church in which my family attended at the time. My Sunday school class was on the end of the hallway. If I drove to Marietta, Georgia right now, I believe if I could gain access to that building, I could walk straight to that room and sit where I sat that morning. I still remember sitting next to the teacher and she was at the end of the table teaching us about the triumphal entry and she had one of those old flannel graph boards. Do you all remember those? And she had a little flannel Jesus and um, had a donkey and had people with palm branches. Now, I'll be honest, I I remember that day and I can remember that day that I was mesmerized and overwhelmed with this story of Jesus riding on a donkey and thousands of people being there and taking their clothes and putting them on the ground for Jesus and waving palm branches. And I remember learning about them singing, Hosanna. I remember learning about the triumphal entry, but at that age, I didn't grasp the the real spiritual truth that is in this event. It wasn't till years later. Now, I'm thankful for those old Sunday school teachers. I I can still just remember being impressed, and perhaps I walked away with what a young boy needed to walk away with, and that was this. Jesus is very important. But it wasn't until years later that I learned a lot of the spiritual truth related to this important event. Now, as we look at the triumphal entry this morning, I want us to ask ourselves, what do we need to know about the triumphal entry? Why did Jesus ride a donkey into Jerusalem? 
What's the point of the palm branches? Why the clothes on the ground? What's the deal with the songs that they sang? Why is this event important to us? Well, in our text, we see four truths, I believe, related to the triumphal entry uh, that can give us hope and help in our Christian journey here on earth in the 21st century. Uh, Number one, we see this idea from the triumphal entry. We're reminded that Jesus came to earth to pay our penalty. Uh, Jesus came to earth to pay our penalty. Now, it's tax season. I can remember uh, years ago after I'd moved back to Georgia from Florida, I received a call that I hadn't paid taxes. I was working at Chick-fil-A in Pensacola, Florida, and I didn't know I was supposed to still pay tax, state taxes to Georgia during those years while I was in college. And I had to pay those taxes and pay a penalty with it. Here's the truth of the Bible. There's a penalty that hangs over all of our lives by default. By by nature as humans, there is a, a penalty held against us before God. See, we are imperfect people, broken people. We are sinful people. We are subject to the fall. We are finite. And as a result of that, there is a penalty. We have, there is separation between us and God. When God looks at us, he sees us naturally as sinful people who are cut off from his presence. We are fallen and feeble and finite. But the good news of the Bible is this. Uh, God made a way to pay for our penalty. We see this starting in Mark chapter 11 and verse number one. The Bible says when they approach Jerusalem, now Jesus had been teaching, performing miracles around the region of his hometown, Galilee. And now he and his disciples approach Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives. And he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. So you see Jesus here is traveling to Jerusalem. He arrives at the Mount of Olives. Now to us, that may just seem like uh, frivolous details in the story, but this is really important stuff in the grand scheme of things. The Mount of Olives was to the east of Jerusalem, two miles from, two miles from the Temple Mount. And Jesus and his disciples approached this elevated place, and many would believe as they approached the Mount of Olives, they had a panoramic view of Jerusalem, the holy city. For you to look back in Mark chapter 10 and verse number 32, Jesus had announced to his disciples, hey, we're going towards Jerusalem, and he walked ahead of them and led them towards Jerusalem, and as he did that, they were afraid. We'll talk about that passage next week. But here, uh, it's, here we see that they arrive at the Mount of Olives. It seems that Jesus and his disciples throughout the Holy Week camped out around the Mount of Olives and every day made the trip back and forth by foot two miles into Jerusalem and then back to sleep at night in the area around Bethpage and Bethany. Now this is significant. The Mount of Olives. It may just seem for us that Mark is mentioning 
Again, kind of frivolous details related to the episode here, but the Mount of Olives was significant in biblical prophecy. According to Zechariah 14.4, the Messiah was prophesied to one day stand on the Mount of Olives. On that day, his feet, Zechariah said, will stand on the Mount of Olives. So Jesus here is fulfilling biblical prophecy by making a strategic significant appearance at this prophetic location. He is showing that he is not just a man, a teacher, a religious leader, or a moral example. He is God come in the flesh to pay our sin penalty. And then Mark continues, or Mark tells us at the beginning of the verse that they approached Jerusalem. <clears throat> just the mention of this place, Jerusalem, is important. Uh, again, if you were to look back at Mark 10, 32, the disciples were afraid when Jesus turned his eyes to Jerusalem. Why? They knew according to Mark chapter three that the Herodians and the Pharisees were plotting to kill Jesus and that to go in Jerusalem would probably mean that he would be apprehended and, and possibly killed. But Jesus approaches Jerusalem anyways. He knows his why. He knows his purpose in life, Luke 19, 10. Jesus had come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus understood that he was God's foreordained plan for salvation. As Revelation 13, 8 teaches us, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so Jesus purposely, purposefully, approached Jerusalem knowing that we had a sin penalty that needed to be paid and Mark continues in verse 2 and he gives account of what Jesus said Jesus said go into village ahead of you as soon as you enter it you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat untie it and bring it to me so Jesus instructs his disciples, hey, go out ahead of me on this journey, go into town and, and secure a cult. Now, it may seem like uh, Jesus here is encouraging his disciples to steal an animal uh, that someone else owned, uh, but it seems he is just following cultural convention. The Romans had detailed laws for barring animals for public transport. You, there, there were laws that stipulated how you could use someone else's means of transportation for yourself. And Jesus likely followed those laws. He probably had a friend in the Bethany area who allowed him to use the animal just for free. If you remember, Lazarus uh, was from Bethany. So maybe perhaps this animal belonged to Jesus' friend Lazarus or maybe another disciple who had seen Lazarus brought back from the dead and Jesus, in accordance with the law, had made travel arrangements. One would leave an animal like this tied to the gate outside the courtyard of his or her house, residence. And so Jesus perhaps had made the arrangements, hey, you're going to go to such and such house in town and right when you get to town, you're going to see there at the, the gate for the courtyard of that house an animal tied there, a, a colt of a donkey. Matthew tells us that the colt and the mother were tied there. Jesus wanted the colt, the younger of the two. Why? It had never been ridden before. 
Now there's great significance in that. Jesus was specific. He didn't want the the animal that had been ridden before. He wanted the animal that had never been ridden before. Why? Because under Mosaic law, animals that were previously unused were a prerequisite. They were required for many of the ceremonial and religious observances under the law. Numbers 19.2, Deuteronomy 21.3. So by requesting this young, unused donkey, Jesus shows that there is religious, sacrificial significance in what he is about to do. He's giving a preview of his sacrifice for sins. He's showing that he will voluntarily offer himself on behalf of our sin penalty. But by requesting this animal, Jesus also has messianic intentions in mind. He intends to show that he is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. He's not just a teacher, a religious leader, a moral example, a miracle worker. He is a substitute for sins, but he is also more. He is the king of the universe. He is the king of creation. He is the one who one day will make a new heaven and new earth and will rule in absolute impeccable righteousness forever. And he deserves our worship. As early as Genesis, God's word foretold that in the future, a ruler from Judah, Genesis 49, 11, would ride a donkey before God's people. And here Jesus takes Genesis 49, 11 upon himself and he asks his disciples to go fetch a young colt of a donkey. The prophet Zechariah had proclaimed that the Messiah would one day appear on such an animal. In Zechariah 9, 9, he said, look, Your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So so see the significance here. See the important spiritual truth. Yes, uh, marvel at this picture of Jesus riding on a donkey, but remember it points to this important truth. Jesus came to earth to pay our sin penalty. The triumphal entry teaches us that Jesus entered into the time continuum of human history to do for us that thing that we couldn't do on our own. See, because of our sin, we all deserve death and separation from God. He is holy, but we are unholy. Our heavenly father is perfect and majestic. We are imperfect and marred by sin. As a result, we can't have a relationship with God on our own terms. He is infinite, but we are finite. We could never reach unto him and earn a relationship through our own effort. But thanks be to God, Jesus Christ, God's son, 100% God, 100% man, came to live the perfect life we could never live. And then he willingly, joyfully, with resolution, went to Jerusalem and went to the cross and died for our sins. He paid our penalty for us so that we don't have to pay it through death and through trusting in his work through humbling ourselves and believing that Jesus was the son of God, we can receive the forgiveness of sins 
from the heavenly father and we can be free from the penalty of sin. We can say with Paul, death, where is your sting? We can say with Paul, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. When we have struggles with sin, we can know that we have power through Jesus. And when we're fearful of death, we can have the hope that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The triumphal entry has great truth for us. First, it teaches that Jesus came to earth to pay our penalty. Secondly, it teaches us that we should seek after humility. Look at verses three and following. Jesus instructed his disciples, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here right away. Now again, Jesus isn't stealing this animal and his disciples here aren't using Jedi mind tricks you know, the Lord needs the animal. The Lord needs the animal. It's not, you know, get that out of your mind. They, 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 Jesus had arranged here, uh, made arrangements according to Roman law to borrow this animal. So, so you can imagine animals tied up to the gate outside the house at the courtyard. Disciples walk into town, folks in Bethany or Bethpage don't know who these guys are. They see them going to a neighbor's house and untying an animal. And the neighbors might ask, hey, what are y'all doing? Oh, we, we've reserved this animal. Our, our, our Lord and master, our rabbi, has already made arrangements to use it. So the disciples get the animal. And verse 4 tells us they went out and they found it outside the street tied by a door. They untied it. And sure enough, Jesus knew this would happen. Verse 5, some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. And so Jesus prophesied that they would face resistance and trying to secure this animal, and they do. And then they get it. They bring it back to Jesus. Verse 7 says, they brought the donkey to Jesus, threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. <laughs> now, Jesus' choice of this animal uh, was significant in that it was the animal for the Messiah. It was an unused animal. It gave uh, a picture that Jesus was coming as the Messiah to offer himself as a religious sacrifice for sins. But Jesus' choice of the cult also taught an important moral lesson about our Lord. By riding on this lowly animal, Jesus showed himself to be the humble, suffering servant. You see, in the, the Roman mindset, a, a king rode a galloping white horse, but Jesus chose a pathetic, measly, small colt of a donkey. He could have called thousands of angels to his side, we know Matthew 26, 53, he could have summoned the mightiest beast of the field to accompany him in a procession into Jerusalem. He could have amassed an army like no other through a mere spoken word. However, creator God, Jesus chose this low-key method of making his appearance. Now, the donkey was indeed the animal of the Jewish king, but in the eyes of the Gentile world, this was ridiculous. Ridiculous. 
What type of king rides a little colt of a donkey? Well, Jesus did all of this to paint a picture that humility was his M.O. And humility should be our M.O. as well. We, we should seek after lowliness of mind and spirit. We, we should pray regularly, Lord, make me meek. The, the early church did this. In fact, the early church father, Tertullian, in history, speaks of how the Gentiles often scorned Christians when they were persecuting them, and they used a slang word for donkey to, to mock the early Christians and to curse them. Why? They knew that Jesus rode on a donkey. What a despicable, pathetic king in the eyes of Gentile warlords. And they knew that his disciples embraced the same mindset of Jesus that they sought to make little of themselves and much of their master. They knew that Christians were characterized by this lowly frame of mind that was exhibited in the life of Jesus. So they used the slang word for donkey as a term of derision for the early Christians. And our Lord and our spiritual ancestors before us teach us that Humility, meekness, and lowliness of mind should be the real active pursuit of every Christ follower. You see, Jesus, we are told, came as a lowly servant. Philippians 2.8 says he himself, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus, Matthew 11.29, said of himself, I am lowly and humble in heart. And considering the humble nature of the Lord, Christians, Christ followers, should seek a similar disposition of the soul. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. And so the triumphal entry teaches us that we should seek after humility in our daily lives. In a world in which many jockey to be number one, Christ calls us to be servants. You see this, the way up is down in the Christian life. We have been called, James 4, 2, to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. We've been instructed, Philippians 2, 3, to consider others as being more important than ourselves. It's worth noting that all of Paul's teaching in humi uh, on humility, or excuse me, Paul's teaching on Christ's humility, Philippians 2, 5 through 10, comes right after he instructed the early church, Philippians 2, 1 through 4, to be humble. We can never fully boast of being real Christ followers until we have learned to make little of ourselves. Now, it's been said that humility is not um, thinking less of yourselves. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So get this, humility isn't this unhealthy perspective where woe is me, I'm so awful and pathetic, I'm insignificant. No, humility is this healthy perspective wherein you put God and others before self. It's in essence living by the great commandment. See, many of us never embrace true humility because we buy into false forms of humility. 
true humility, Philippians 2, 3, Matthew 22, 37 through 40, is putting self in the right order, making God and then others first. We can never fully boast of being true Christ followers until we have learned to put self in its right place. Our primary focus should not be on us, our wants, and what others think of us. Loving God and our neighbors, Matthew 22, 37 through 40, the great commandment should be our main focus. And can I tell you that humility really is the balm for your soul? If you'll examine your own life, a lot of your fear, a lot of your bitterness, a lot of resentment, a lot of anxiety is tied to your ability to get your eyes on Jesus and others and to get your eyes off of yourself. Jesus teaches us here this important lesson. We should seek after humility. Number three, the triumphal entry teaches us this great truth. Jesus is king and he deserves our worship. They brought the donkey to Jesus, verse seven, and he said, sat on it. He sat on it. And then verse eight says, many people spread their clothes on the road and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Why did they do this? Why this spontaneous response? Well, they knew exactly what Jesus was attempting to do. They knew scripture. They knew that he was the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 or that he was claiming to be the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. On top of that, remember, this was the time of the year for the Passover. People are traveling to the holy city to observe this important feast. They tell us at this time of the year that nearly 300,000 people had made the, were making the trek into Jerusalem. So Jesus is surrounded by this massive humanity as he walks in. Now, I, just this past week, I signed up for the Peachtree Road Race. I don't know if it'll take place. We don't know if it'll take place. Uh, I'm back in Georgia now, and I thought, this year, I, I want to run the Peachtree Road Race again on the 4th of July. And it'd be wonderful to do that, being back in Georgia, but also, hopefully by then, all of this stuff has died down with the coronavirus, and that'd be a great way to celebrate. So I signed up. I know I'll get my money back if it doesn't work out. But anyways, I signed up. But I've run the Peachtree Road Race before. And I was reminded this past week that there are around 60,000 people who run that race down Peachtree. Now, if you've ever run that race before, you know what it's like to be in the midst of that sweaty mass of humanity, rubbing arms and elbows with people as you run. I'm going to have extra hand sanitizer this year if I run it. But you know how, what it's like to have 60,000 people on a big road like Peachtree. Now imagine ancient roads, an ancient city, and 300,000 people, five times the number of people running the Peachtree road race, going in to the holy city. And they observe Jesus on a donkey. And they know prophecy, and they know about all of his miracles and his teaching, They've heard of him. They know he's from Galilee. They know that he's in the line of David. You could go to the local synagogue, many of them, and check the records. They know what Jesus is attempting to do. He's projecting himself to be the king of Israel. And so they spread their clothes on the road 
and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. This was a welcome for a king. They're giving him the VIP treatment. Many there perhaps saw in Jesus' acts a, a reminder of 2 Samuel 19.40 when David returned to the capital city after Absalom's revolt. And here, Mark 11.9 says they give, they, tells us that they gave him a hearty reception as David was given. It says those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now Matthew's gospel tells us that the, the scene was intense. The decibel levels were high. There was so much shouting, Matthew's gospel tells us, that it felt like the city was shaking. And here Mark uses a word for shouted that appears in the imperfect tense depicting a continual action in the past. Over and over again, repeatedly, the people were screaming out, Hosanna, Hosanna. The triumphal entry here teaches us that we ought to have a similar type of worship. Jesus is king and we ought to worship him. They shouted continually, Hosanna, we should regularly, continually worship and praise Jesus. Do you do that? Do you worship him on a regular basis? I know you're tuned in for worship this morning, but is worship more than a Sunday morning event? Is worship for you a regular, continual thing? Do you have a daily time of getting alone with the Lord and worshiping him by allowing his truth to program your mind? Do you have a regular time of prayer and praise where you talk to the heavenly father and ascribe to him the worth he is due? Get what the triumphal entry teaches us. Jesus is king and he deserves your worship. Their words were, a fulfillment of Psalm 118.26 where the psalmist saying, he who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed from the house of the Lord, we bless you. They sing this word, Hosanna, that means save us. Save us, we pray, or save us now. The words are drawn from Psalm 118, a psalm that celebrated Israel's release from Egypt and we're reminded that we have a song to sing. We may not have been brought as slaves out of Egypt, but we've been brought as slaves out of the slave market of sin. We have been redeemed by a king. Hosanna, he has saved us. This song reminds us that Jesus is king and he deserves our worship. And this song reminds us that at the heart of our worship, there should be a focus on the fact that we are people in need of salvation. Perhaps you've never been saved. You can cry out to God today, Hosanna, Lord, save me. I recognize I need you. I recognize I'm a sinner and I recognize Jesus died for my sin. Hosanna, save me. Maybe you're a believer and you say, Patrick, I've been saved. Well, can I remind you that you should regularly be crying out to the Lord, oh Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Oh Lord, save me. Oh Lord, help me to live in your righteousness. They cry, Hosanna. Then in verse 10, they say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David Hosanna in the highest they use the messianic title David 
They know that Jesus is making by riding on this donkey. The other Passover worshipers came to the city on foot. Jesus rides on a donkey. They know that he's staking claim on David's throne. And they sing, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Get the atmosphere. The people are ready for war. They're ready for the Romans to be run out of town. Perhaps many of them were ready to spill blood. We know this is true. We'll later see Peter pulling out his sword and hacking off ears. The people are ready to fight. They're ready for blood to fill the streets, for the Romans to run, and for Jesus to set up a political kingdom that will never end. But little did they know that there was a different type of bloodshed that was required. They were unfamiliar with the Lord's sovereign intentions for this first coming. They had missed the meaning of Genesis 3, 15 and Isaiah 53, 4 through 9. They're worshiping Jesus as a king, but they didn't realize that he needed to first be a suffering servant. The triumphal entry teaches us that Jesus is king and he deserves our worship and he is the king who has shed his blood on our behalf. By his stripes, we are healed. Our, our sin debt has been paid. And because of what Jesus has done, he is worthy of our worship. And we as his people now living on planet earth should align our lives under his authority and live as fragrant offerings to him, worshiping him through how we live, how we talk, how we think, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, and how we serve him. Jesus is king, and he deserves our worship. Lastly, I want you to see this truth. The triumphal entry teaches us that how we respond to Jesus is of utmost importance. Look at the last verse here, verse 11. It says, Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. The word for temple there is the word that refers to the entire temple complex, not just the holy area. So he, he most likely enters the temple complex uh, through the, uh, a gate on the eastern side. And Mark says in verse 11 that Jesus looked around at everything. He says, after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So he goes back out to camp in Bethany. He makes the two-mile trip back out to Bethany. But notice his portrayal of Jesus looking around at everything. Mark is the only one who records this detail. And it seems significant. It seems meaningful. Just picture Jesus taking a time out after interacting with thousands of people, after all of the loud singing and the hearty reception he received. He takes a moment just to stand still in the temple complex and to gaze and to look at everything. His eyeballs are analyzing the structures of the building, the people and what they're doing. He hears the noise, he smells the smells, he takes in the sights. What's going through his mind? Why does Mark include this detail. 
Well, I believe the other gospel writers give us a clue. The other gospel writers tell us that immediately after entering in to the temple area, Jesus began to perform acts of judgment. He turned over the tables of the money changers and did other such things. And we believe that in Jesus' steely gaze over the city, we see a sign of judgment. Jesus knew how the people would soon scorn and reject him, Mark 15, 14. So he looked upon the city in brokenhearted pity. He knew the hearts of the residents as he watched them, and he knew what they would soon do to him. They would reject the Lord's anointed one. They had just been singing his praises. Soon they would be crying out, crucify him. And Jesus looked at them in pity because he knew the judgment that awaited them. He knew that their hearts weren't in the right place. He knew that they had missed the truth of scripture. They had missed the meaning of life. They had overlooked their opportunity for salvation. And Jesus' act of looking around at Jerusalem is instructive for us. We're reminded that Jesus isn't just a good person. He is the holy king over all of creation. And he is the holy judge over all of mankind. Romans 1.14 teaches us that he has fiery eyes that will one day look into our souls. And Jesus said that every idle word we've spoken, that one day we will give an account before him. You see, Jesus is God and he sees our sin, our wrongdoing, our lust, our greed. He sees our arrogance, our prayerlessness, our godlessness. He sees the depths of our selfishness and egotism. He sees where we reject him and despise him. He sees our unloving behavior and our mistreatment of others. He sees our secret sins. He sees our bitterness. He sees our idolatry. We'll one day stand before him. Paul warned us, you will one day stand at the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. And Paul would say to the Philippians, Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so this begs a question this morning. If Jesus could look into our souls, what would he see? If he was to stare at you for a moment as he stared at the city of Jerusalem, what would he see? He would see either one of two things, Scripture teaches. He would either see your sin or his righteousness. The Bible teaches that we are all by nature sinful. We have all sinned, Romans 3.23, and fall short of the glory of God But God demonstrates his love towards us, Paul would later say in Romans, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible teaches that whoever believes that, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, confessing sin and asking for salvation through the blood of Jesus, that person will be completely washed of his or her sins. So when Jesus looks at you, he either sees your sin or he sees his righteousness. 